Chapter Four of Bullets and Billets by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: More mud, rain and bullets, a bit of cake, wind up, night rounds. The rose-pink sky fades off above to blue. The morning star alone proclaims the dawn. The empty tins and barbed wire bathed in dew emerge, and then another day is born. I wrote that poem in those trenches, so you can see the sort of state to which I was reduced. Well, my first trench night was over. The dawn had broken. Everything else left to break had been seen to by the artillery, which started off generally at about eight. And what a fearful long day it seemed, that first one. As soon as it was light I began scrambling about and having a good look at the general lie of things. In front was a large expanse of root field, at the further side of which a long irregular parapet marked the German trenches. Behind those again was more root field, dented here and there with shell holes filled with water, beyond which stood a few isolated remnants which had once been cottages. I stood at a projection in one of our trenches from where I could see the general shape of our line and could glimpse a good view of the German arrangements. Not a soul could be seen anywhere. Here and there a wisp of smoke indicated a fire bucket. Behind our trenches, behind the shattered houses at the top of a wooded rise in the ground, stood what once must have been a fine chateau. As I looked, a shrieking hollow whistle overhead, a momentary pause, then, crumph, showed clearly what was the matter with the chateau. It was being shelled. The Germans seemed to have a rooted objection to that chateau. Every morning as we crouched in our mud kennels we heard those crumphs, and soon got to be very good judges of form. We knew they were shelling the chateau. When they didn't shell the chateau, we got it in the trenches. So we looked on that dear old mangled wreck with a friendly eye, that tapering, twisted, perforated spire which they never could knock down, was an everlasting bait to the Bosch, and a perfect fairy godmother to us. Oh, those days in that trench of ours! Each day seemed about a week long. I shared a dugout with a platoon commander after that first night. The machine-gun section found a suitable place and made a dugout for themselves. Day after day, night after night, my companion and I lay and listened to the daily explosions, read and talked and sloshed about that trench together. The greatest interest one had in the daytime was sitting on the damp straw in our clay vault, scraping the mud off one's saturated boots and clothes. The event to which one looked forward with the greatest interest was the arrival of letters in the evening. Now and again we got out of our dugout and sloshed down the trench to scheme out some improvement or other, or to furtively look out across the waterlogged turnip field at the Bosch trenches opposite. Occasionally in the silent, still foggy mornings a voice from somewhere in the alluvial depths of a miserable trench would suddenly burst into a scrap of song, such as old soldiers never die, they simply fade away. A voice full of fed-upness, steeped in determination. Then all would be silence for the next couple of hours, and so the day passed. At dusk my job was to emerge from this horrible drain and go round the various machine-gun positions. What a job! 
I generally went alone and in the darkness struck out across the sodden field, tripping, stumbling, and sometimes falling into various shell holes on the way. One does a little calling at this time of day. Having seen a gun in another trench, one looks up the nearest platoon commander. You look into so-and-so's dugout and find it empty. You ask a sergeant where the occupant is. He's down the trench, sir. You push your way down the trench, dodging pools of water and stepping over fire buckets, mess tins, brushing past men standing, leaning, or sitting right on down the trench, where, round a corner, you find the platoon commander. Well, if we can't get any sandbags, he is probably saying to a sergeant, we will just have to bank it up with earth and put those men on the other side of the traverse, or something like that. He turns to me and says, come along back to my dugout and have a bit of cake. Someone or other has sent one out from home. We start back along the trench. Suddenly a low murmuring, rattling sound can be heard in the distance. We stop to listen. The sound gets louder. Everyone stops to listen. The sound approaches and is now distinguishable as rifle fire. The firing becomes faster and faster, then suddenly swells into a roar, and now comes the phenomenon of trench warfare. Wind up. The prairie fire of the trenches. Everyone stands to the parapet, and away on the left a tornado of crackling sound can be heard getting louder and louder. In a few seconds it is swept on down the line, and now a deafening rattle of rifle fire is going on immediately in front. Bullets are flicking the tops of the sandbags on the parapet in hundreds, whilst white streaks are shooting up with a swish into the sky and burst into bright, radiating blobs of light, the star shell at its best. A curious thing, this wind-up. We never knew when it would come on. It is caused entirely by nerves. Perhaps an inquisitive Bosch, somewhere a mile or two on the left, had thought he saw someone approaching his barbed wire. A few shots are exchanged, a shout or two followed by more shots. Panic! More shots, panic spreading, then suddenly the whole line of trenches on a front of a couple of miles succumbs to that well-known malady, wind up. In reality, it is highly probable that there was no one in front near the wire, and no one has had the least intention of being there. Presently there comes a deep boom from somewhere in the distance behind, and a large shell sails over our heads and explodes somewhere amongst the Bosch. Another and another, and then all becomes quiet again. The rifle fire diminishes and soon ceases. Total result of one of these firework displays, several thousand rounds of ammunition squibbed off, hundreds of star shells wasted, and no casualties. It put the wind up me at first, but I soon got to know these affairs and learned to take them calmly. I went along with the platoon commander back to his lair. An excellent fellow he was. No one in this war could have hated it all more than he did, and no one could have more conscientiously done his very best at it. Poor fellow, he was afterwards killed near Ypres. Well, how are things going with you, I said. Oh, all right. They knocked down that same bit of parapet again today. I think they must imagine we've got a machine gun there or something. That's twice we've had to build it up this week. Have a bit of cake? So I had a bit of cake and left him, he going back to that old parapet again, whilst I struck off into the dark, wet field towards another gun position, 
falling into an unfamiliar Johnson Ole on the way. No one gets a better idea of the general lie of the position than a machine-gun officer. In those early, primitive days when we had so few of each thing, we of course had few machine-guns, and these had to be sprinkled about a position to the best possible advantage. The consequence was that people like myself had to cover a considerable amount of ground before our rambles in the dark each night were done. One machine gun might be, say, in Dead Man Farm, another at the barrier near the crossroads, whilst another couple were just at some effective spot in a trench, or in a commanding position in a shattered farm or cottage behind the front-line trenches. I would leave my dugout as soon as it was dark and do the round of all the guns every night. Just as a sample, I will carry on from where I left the platoon commander. I slosh across the ploughed field at what I feel to be a correct angle to bring me out on the crossroads, where, about two hundred yards away, I have another gun. I scramble across a broken gateway in an old bit of trench, and close behind come to a deep cutting into which I jump. About five yards along this I come to a machine-gun emplacement with a machine-gun sentry on guard. Where's the corporal? I'm here, sir, is emitted from the slimy depths of a narrow, low-roofed dugout, and the corporal emerges, hooking back the waterproof sheet as he comes out to prevent the light showing. How about this gun, corporal? Is everything all right? Yes, sir, but I was looking around today and thought that if we was to shift the gun over there where the dead cow is, we'd get a better field of fire. Meeting adjourned to inspect this valuable site from the windward side. After a short bloodthirsty conversation relative to the perforating of the enemy, I leave and push off into the bog again, striking out for another visit. Finally, after two hours visiting, floundering, bullet-dodging, and star-shell shirking, accompanied by a liberal allowance of narrow squeaks, I get back to my own bit of trench, and, tobogganing down where I erroneously think the clay steps are, I at last reach my dugout, and entering on all fours, crouch amongst the damp tobacco leaves and straw and light a cigarette. End of chapter 4 Recording by Philip Gould